0: This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and we now switch gears and are moving quickly towards Christmas. And so, the themes in today's Gospel have to do, or today's Gospel and also the other readings, have to do with uh, the tradition of the Incarnation, how Christians have understood this, how the biblical witness delivers to us uh, ways of interpreting the Incarnation. Uh, ways of understanding uh, what we mean when we speak of God becoming a human being. So in my sermon this morning, I'm going to preach on all of the readings and to do what they call an exegesis of the readings, which is something uh, in homiletics class that they said you should never do. But I've said this to you before, I never found any homiletics class useful. (laughs) In spite of what they say. Is there an attitude coming out there, do you think? That, yeah, there is. Anyway, I want to talk about this interpretively because it's important to understand this because of the way Episcopalians come to what is authoritative in their understanding of the deep things of Christian faith and belief. We have a three-way test for what we understand to be authoritative. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And those are the ways that we bring to bear the full force and effect of our intellectual powers on the deep things of Christian faith and belief. But there is something else you need to know, and I need to reinforce always this time of year. Henry Chadwick, the great uh, historian of the early Christian church, says in in an article, an extended essay he wrote a number of years ago, We must always keep in mind that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. So the Bible is not a hermetically sealed unit that fell out of the sky into our hands. And in some way is to be believed and interpreted neat or, for that matter, literally. It was written by the church. And therefore, our ability to interpret it is driven to some extent by that historical reality. It does not mean we handle the biblical text with disrespect or that we disbelieve that in, in the way in which we would describe it, it represents God's word. But we need to understand that in the history of the Tradition with a capital T, the Church comes first and then the Holy Scriptures. Here's what emerged out of the New Testament period in terms of how we understood Church, the institution. In this order, the Episcopate first The next thing is the baptismal creed, what we call the Apostles' Creed. And the last thing is the canon of the Holy Scriptures, chronologically. Those are the three things that emerge now uh, as the church begins to seek to be faithful and to reflect on what's in the biblical text and to deal pastorally with the issues on the ground that become part of their common life together. So one of the things that we have in the tradition with a capital T is the view that we somehow need to come to grips with the fact that the biblical witness seems to indicate this. And certainly Christian people prior to the writing of the biblical witness came to the idea that in Jesus, in his words and in his works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And somehow we need to discuss and reflect upon what is the relationship between the humanity of Jesus, the historical person, and what we perceive to be his divinity. And how do we understand the relationship between these two natures? And do we see anything in the great tradition in the biblical sense that would indicate to us some sort of a process whereby the people of God come to see that in the birth of the Savior, we see now uniquely focused the divine presence? And we know furthermore that prior to this, God's renewing saving power, God's restoration, God's re- returning from exile, God's bringing to an end the sense of lostness and alienation that human beings feel has somehow somehow now been brought to healing and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Where can we look for this? And one of the places we look is in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And we read today a famous passage, In the book of the prophet Isaiah that's read always during this time of year. And in this passage it says, Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Well, who are they talking about? Christian people say this text is predictive of the coming of Jesus. The birth of Jesus. And they will, as Matthew does today, appropriate this quotation for their purposes. But I need to tell you something about the situation on the ground. What was going on when the prophet Isaiah felt compelled to announce this to King Ahab on the eve of war and conflict? I read a commentary on this passage this week by Dr. Reginald Fuller, one of the famous uh, biblical scholars of the 20th century. And Dr. Fuller said, you will see by uh, Isaiah's persistence here that he realized that Ahab, the king, did not want to have any truck with Isaiah's prophecy. But Isaiah went ahead And he said, Behold, the young woman is with child and she'll bear a son. Who is this young woman? Well, this young woman is King Ahab's wife, the queen. And she's pregnant with the successor to King Ahab, King Hezekiah. Who cares? Well, Matthew's going to care and a lot of other people because in the genealogies that are produced, it will now connect Jesus with King David. And it will assure the continuation of the Davidic monarchy for Ahab. So God's continuing processes and purposes are going to be there. And the messianic yearnings of the people of Israel which will be present at the time of Jesus, will look back and say, you know, what we thought the Messiah was going to be was an earthly king. And what we have prayed and hoped for was the restoration of the Davidic monarchy. So the way we think about humanity and divinity at this point is that Jesus must, in some fashion, represent the embodiment of those yearnings, but also something else some spiritual purpose, some divinity, some way of understanding that as it manifests itself in humanity. So Matthew was going to use this text. Hold that thought because we're going to go back there for a minute, in a minute. In the reading from Romans, the letter to the Romans, we have present in it the tradition with a capital T, an early creedal statement embedded in the the text about who Jesus is and about how Paul understands Jesus. Remember when you read the epistle to the Romans, perhaps the most important epistle Paul ever wrote, this is one epistle he was writing to a congregation or a Christian community that he did not found. The Roman church was founded some other way. And Paul is writing a letter to them to introduce himself and to give him them a letter from him about his version of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is going to explain to them his understanding of what this is. And he prays and believes and hopes that it is a version of the gospel that they recognize. That somehow has been given to them by those who evangelized the Roman Christians and form now what we call the Roman Christian Church. So we read in the beginning today the introduction to the epistle. And as we distill what's said in this introduction, we read from Paul that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh, designated son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. And that this understanding of the person of Jesus in the New Testament time prior to the writing of the Gospels is part of the early tradition of how we understand who Jesus is. So he's going to take up from Isaiah the idea of the Davidic Messiah, but he's also going to speak about the spirit of holiness, that in Jesus there is somehow this divine center, which we will be able to share and participate in as we live. So we go to Matthew. There are only two infancy narratives in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke. Mark does not have an infancy narrative. John does not have an infancy narrative. There isn't much mention in the New Testament outside of the infancy narratives uh, of the virginity of Mary. So I want to say a brief word to you about this because it's very important about why uh, Luke and Matthew take pains to speak about this. First of all, let me clear up some terminology. We are not talking today about the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception does not have anything to do with Jesus. The Immaculate Conception is a doctrine that was developed in the Middle Ages to assert that the Blessed Virgin Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin. So to use all the technical language, it means that when she was born, she was born with pope post-baptismal grace. This doctrine has always been controversial. And some of the most notable medieval theologians demurred from believing that this was an adequate way to explain this issue. It is one of the issues that Anglicans and Roman Catholics agree to disagree about. It may surprise you to know that in 2005, the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican Communion issued a joint statement on their belief about the importance and centrality of Mary and how they understand in most particulars the same thing about her role in the divine economy, but that there are agreements to disagree with regard to issues like the Immaculate Conception and also the Doctrine of the Assumption. But in typical Anglican fashion we celebrate three feast days for the Blessed Mother. The Feast of the Visitation, the Feast of the Annunciation, and on August the 15th the Feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary. August the 15th in the Roman Catholic Church is the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The collect that Anglican Christians or Episcopalians pray from their prayer book on August 15th is, in fact, the collect of the Assumption. So, you know how we are. You make up your mind about all of that, right? But those are issues that we have a conversation about, and... No Episcopalian needs to understand those things as dogmas necessary to believe. So what we're talking about today is the virginal conception that somehow Mary was conceived spiritually without any human agency. When I taught religion at St. Michael's School, the fourth graders we would get to this thing and some kid would always say, yeah, but yeah... But, but, I mean, how did she get pregnant? So you would say, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And when you're in the fourth grade, they go, oh. <laughs> then the seventh and the eighth grade, it became a little more problematic, right? Right? So let me do some word stuff for you. I think I did a little bit of this last week. What we just read from Isaiah, look, the young woman, is an accurate translation from the Hebrew Bible. The word used for young woman is Alma in Hebrew, and it means a young woman of marriageable age. After Alexander the Great and Jews get scattered all over the ancient Near East and many of them forget how to speak Hebrew, they decided they needed to have a Greek version of their sacred scriptures, which we call the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And so there was produced something called the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek. So in Luke's account of the infancy narrative and in Matthew's account of the infancy narrative, they quote Isaiah and say, look, a virgin shall conceive and bear in her womb a son. Parthenos, which is what it says in the Septuagint. Why? Luke and Matthew in their infancy narratives agree on practically nothing except this. And so if we're talking about scripture, tradition, and reason and experience, it would seem to suggest that there was a pre-existing tradition prior to the writing of the Gospels that was at pains to preserve the view that Mary conceived Jesus without human agency. That the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and she had Jesus and Jesus' origins are both human through her and divine. And that there is a desire to preserve this idea of the two natures. You need to make your own mind up about that. But you do need to know that in the history of the tradition some pains were taken to preserve it. It is particularly remarkable that Matthew used the Septuagint since he was a former rabbi and was a Hebrew speaker and reader. So he would have been familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, but he used the Septuagint. So, I just put it out there at the group level. What is it that we're trying to get at here? We're trying to get at some understanding of Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, and if we understand that Jesus reflects not two separate natures, but one nature with his divinity embedded in it, so too, if he represents the highest and best of our humanity, might it not be possible for us to understand something about our own divine center? We are not Jesus. We are not God. But our true self is God. What Father Thomas Keating says. So what Jesus Christ is by nature... we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. And we participate in the divine life. So that's why you hear me say all the time that being the best human being you can be is one of the ways that you touch your divine center. Because we have seen the unique focus of the divine presence in a human being, Jesus Christ. And we believe that to be definitive for Christian people in a way that will transform us corporately and personally. So as we move towards Christmas, give thanks for the incarnation. Give thanks for the ability to touch your divine center, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. And as you proceed, work this week on being the best human being you can be. Amen.